Good. So, like I said, I would start this class with answering the questions that people had or comments. Had a comment about the number 666, how that's the name of a particular, you know, it, that is the number of the Antichrist. Uh, people have wondered, is, does that correlate with a particular name? Uh, it's hard to say. At least scripture doesn't explicitly give us a name for the Antichrist. Uh, if you remember from 1 John 2.18, scripture says the Antichrist is coming, and so many Antichrists have come. And there's not a specific name, but, but we know the characteristics of the Antichrist, someone who exalts himself you know, above all authorities, exalts himself above God, demands worship, demands absolute loyalty, you know, persecutes the church. I mean, there's these general characteristics that have happened throughout history, whether it's the Roman Emperor Nero, or you can even say, uh, you know, world power, you know, world leaders today, you know, that that are really persecuting and bringing destruction on the church. Uh, so, and and we have to also remember, Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. So, you know, if Scripture were to give us the name of the Antichrist, it's going to be this particular person. Well, that kind of takes away an element of the mystery. So, so we are called to be watchful. We are given clues and signs, but. Uh, well, Jesus said, no, you know, no man knows the day or the hour, you know, uh, only my Father in heaven, not even the Son. And to emphasize that, that the fact that we have to be watchful, we have to be ready at any moment for Jesus to come back. Did you by chance ask the number that verse it is? Uh, the number 666? Yeah. Uh, not off the top of my head. Because there's um, something in there that it's not the, just the, the number. The, it's it's the, there's some encouragement if you're wise to... Try to understand or something like that. I forget exactly what it is, but it's not just a case of well, it's a number there and we can't right. figure it out, so we we'll just ignore them. There's some encouragement there, which would imply that God would encourage some people at least to be pursuing yeah, yeah, an understanding of what that means. Yeah, absolutely, and you know it's probably easy enough to find 1318. 13, yeah. yeah, which says yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's uh, and it uh, it causes all, both slave and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So there's some kind of worldwide control or domination, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number six six. That second part. Yeah. That anybody who has understanding calculate. Right. Any, right. any speculation among seminary and Bible scholars and authors about what's meant by calculate? Uh, I think uh, you know. Just again, there, that's it's a. There's a lot of different interpretations for that. Um, you know, the, the approach I'm taking here in this class is is to view it more as symbolic because it's prophetic literature. Uh, and as I talked about last time, you know, you have seven as a number of perfection, right? You've got you know, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, 777, um, and 666 is a number that falls short of that. Uh, it's counterfeit. It may look very close to the real deal, but it's not. So that's the approach. It's not the only approach that you can take. And there's, I think there are wrong ways to approach it where, you know, if you try to calculate the day or the hour that Christ is coming back, and this, because, of, because Christ is coming at on... December 1st, 2019. Okay, so this person, person X, must be the Antichrist. Well, I, I don't think that's, that's, a, that's an unwise. And, you know, that, that would contradict 
scriptures approach in terms of, you know, nobody knows the day or the hour. So I think there's right ways to try to use wisdom to figure out who the Antichrist is, and there's wrong ways. Anything you wanted to add? Sure. Yes. A man whom I've met who is very evil and God revealed to me that this was the Antichrist and his name was Billy Nintensky, William Nintensky. How is he? This is a recent person you've met? Not recently, within I'd say 20 years. Okay, how old is he? I don't know how old he is. Okay, um, but uh. His name is Nemchinsky. He was born of Jewish parents, I believe, of the tribe of Dan. Um, they called him Hilla or Hilia, something like that. But his name is Nemchinsky. And the Lord explained to me that Nem in an, in an ancient language means six, Chem in an ancient language means six, and Ski in an ancient language means six. And that was his name, Nintendo. Yeah, so that's that's certainly possible, and I think you know we'll know if he's going to be the Antichrist because he's going to you yes. know, become the worldwide power right. and start killing Christians. And right, that. I understand so, that, but I would, so. I just wanted to warn people. Okay, yeah, that's his name. Yeah, and I think that warning, you know, is true for all of us now, just to be aware that persecution can and it will will be coming. And could be this man, could be another person, uh, or it could be hundreds of years from now, or even thousands of years from now. What's fascinating, you read the book of Genesis, and you know, it's been 2,000 years since the coming of Christ, but, uh, you know, there was, um, but there was, in Genesis, people who lived almost 1,000 years, and you know, generations of people who lived thousands of years. So in terms of overall human history, you know, really not that long has passed. You know, some people might, we might feel like, oh, it's been 2,000 years since Christ came. Well, surely he's got to be coming soon. Maybe, maybe, or it could be another 10,000 years. You know, we don't know. Um, I have a question about the rapture. Um, the, the word rapture comes from the Latin word rapio, which means to seize or to snatch up from the Greek word most likely carpazzo, which again means to snatch or to seize up. Uh, Christians do believe in the rapture in the sense that the church is taken up, right? Those who are dead in Christ will rise. Those who are alive will rise and be joined up together with him. And they will always be together with the Lord. Uh, there are some Christians who believe that the rapture will happen uh, twice. And this is what I mean by that. The rapture happens like the church is taken up. Then there's a period of tribulation, a worldwide uh, suffering uh, persecution, worldwide tribulation, uh, the plagues described in the book of Revelation, and then there's a thousand-year millennial kingdom, and then Christ will come back a second time, visibly, and then that's like a second rapture, because whoever's left will be raptured up. Um, you know, that's, again, you know, that's that's another way to interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, I think it seems to me to be more likely that there's only one rapture, that uh, that the church isn't raptured before the Great Tribulation. I think there's lots of passages that talk about, uh, here's the call for the endurance of the saints. Like, there is, uh, the beast is given authority over every tribe, language, and nation, and then uh, the church is taken into captivity. The church is killed by the sword. 
Uh, here's the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So uh, to me, just reading Revelation doesn't seem to me like there's a big rapture that suddenly spares the church from worldwide tribulation or worldwide persecution. But the fact that the church is called to endure through a tribulation, through suffering, through persecution, and called to be faithful to Christ through it. So, uh, but again, you know, that is a point of disagreement. Um, but the focus of my class has really been to emphasize points that all Christians should agree on. Like the fact that, yeah, the church will be raised up. We will be with Christ. Christ comes a second time. There's disagreement on, you know, the exact timeline uh, of how that will all unfold. And that's, again, because it's prophetic literature, right? This, is, this hasn't happened yet, and there's a bit of ambiguity on, on you know, it's not a... You know, God isn't giving us an exact timeline of this is going to happen, then that, then that, then that, and then this year, then that year, and this year. I mean, it's, it's used in you know, symbolic language. But you, uh, the idea is like it's not a photograph, but more, more a, a, a painting, right? Like an impressionist painting. You know what's going to happen. You're prepared, <coughs> right? but you shouldn't try to like discern like exact historical. Well, in the year 2015, we expect this to happen. I mean, you know, we're nowhere in Scripture are we given that kind of precision for the return of Christ in these events. And uh, if we have more time, we can definitely do more Q&A, but I want us to get moving on the second part of this, uh, uh, this class. So uh, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. And as you guys do that, let me just do a quick recap. You guys turn to Revelation 7. Uh, again, the big idea is that Christians are called to endure because Jesus has the final victory. Heaven is certain and all evil will be destroyed. Last time we covered the two uh, two of the four main themes in Revelation. We've got counterfeit and crescendo. And in light of that, we as the church are called to resist sin and persecution, maybe even to the point of shedding our blood, and also to say no to the seduction and to the temptations of this world. Ultimately, because Jesus is worth it, and we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear even if we have to lose our lives. Uh, we don't have to fear giving into temptation. We do have a faithful high priest who will, who will keep us pure and holy. So let's look at and let's look at Revelation chapter seven. Uh, someone could read verses nine through twelve. And again, we're we're looking at this to remind ourselves this this is where human history is headed. This is where the church is headed. This is where uh, we're what we have to look forward to. Someone has Revelation seven nine through twelve. Read it nice and loud. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And then can someone read 13 through 17? And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night 
in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. So that's, that's our hope. So, so as we you know, study these things, you know, there are things that are difficult to understand. There are mysterious things. There are things that we're just going just gonna to leave us scratching our heads at, at some level. But we've got to keep the big picture in mind. We've got to remember the throne. Remember God glorified. Remember that we will be with him. And that's, that's our hope. So don't, don't lose sight of this even as we try to you know, discern, okay, what, who might that Antichrist be? What, what is that 666? And what are these, how are these things going to happen? So can we hold that? Otherwise, we're not going to finish. Um, so I'm going to go through the last uh, two C's, uh, conflict and consummation. Again, these are in your handouts. Uh, the scripture references are there. Uh, one of the big themes in Revelation is this theme of conflict, you know, the spiritual warfare, you know, conflict between light and darkness, between good and evil. Uh, <clears throat> keep your finger in Revelation. Let's turn back to the very beginning of the Bible to Genesis chapter 3. We've already been looking at this in, in our Christmas sermon series on the promised one, but this is so important, we're going to look at it again. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And then, again, it's... To remind you guys, God, for reasons only fully known to himself, has, is, brings about his plan of redemption through conflict. Right? I mean, Christ could have just come immediately after uh, Adam and Eve sinned. It could, have just been, it could have been just finished right then and there. But redemptive history is the history of, of conflict. So uh, can someone read Genesis three thirteen through 15? And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said the, uh, to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise is healed. Thank you. So redemptive history, as we've been seeing in the, our, our Christmas series, is, is the history of, of conflict, of enmity, of hostility between the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of the serpent. And here in this passage, Genesis 3, as we've looked at already you know, this month, uh, we see the first promise of the gospel. The first promise, it, it's only an outline form, but it's there. You know, there's going to be uh, a decisive defeat of evil, decisive defeat of Satan that comes through struggle. Um, that, that seed of the woman, that offspring of the woman will suffer a mortal wound, but will be victorious. Adam and Eve didn't know all the details, right? But we, all, you know, so blessed to be on this side of the cross. We know that that offspring is Jesus Christ. He is the offspring of the woman. His heel was bruised when he was crucified, when he died. And yet... In his death and resurrection, he crushed sin and Satan. And, but that pattern you know, that was set forth in Genesis 3 is repeated over and over again all throughout the Bible. We see the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And just a couple examples to throw out. We see 
Abel versus Cain, right? Noah versus the ungodly, Lot, righteous Lot versus Sodom, and then the nation of Israel versus Egypt, or Israel versus Canaan. And even today, if we fast forward, we see the church versus the powers of darkness. So, so that struggle's been going on and on. Uh, I want us to turn to Daniel chapter 7, because this gives us, you know, Daniel, as I mentioned last week, gives us a lot of the prophetic background for the book of Revelation. A lot of similar themes are, are, are carried over by the Apostle John uh, from Daniel you know, in, into the book of Revelation. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read 13 and 14. And here, uh, it's, it's important to remember that quite frequently, it, it appears that evil has the upper hand, that evil is winning, like the, like the church is losing, the church is getting persecuted. Evil might have the upper hand, but not ultimately, right? Ultimately, the offspring of, this, of the woman, that, that seed is victorious. And throughout redemptive history, we see, we see the promise of Genesis 3 filled out. You know, that outline is filled out. So let's look at Daniel 7, 13 and 14, because this forms really important Old Testament background for the book of Revelation. I was watching in the night's visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancient days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And so that dominion, that glory, the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, right, who's given an everlasting kingdom, it comes through conflict. So let's uh, skip down to verses 19 through 21. So Daniel 7, 19 through 21. Can somebody read that? Then, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on his head, and the other horn which came up before which three, which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Amen. Yeah. So, but that's the key. There, there is that phrase in there. Um, it's, it's there. It's easy to miss in 21, right? This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the final victory. So there is that struggle. Just as Jesus suffered and died right, on, on the road to victory, uh, you know, we are called to take up our cross. We are called to suffer. For his name's sake. Uh, and yet that final victory is assured. Let's, let's look at Daniel 7, verses 26 and 27. Daniel 7, 26 and 27. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. 
Yep. So that's so so despite any kind of initial victory that evil might have, ultimately it is crushed, right? And that that the everlasting kingdom of the Most High God will be established forever and ever. Okay. What was your last verse that you called out? Oh yeah, it was, uh, Daniel seven twenty six and twenty seven. Again, uh, oh, okay. Gary, that should be in your handout, yeah, so feel free to. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, and we know in the Gospels, you know, Jesus promised similar things, right? Take up our cross. You know that there'll come a time when people who uh, persecute you will think that uh, they are honoring God. Uh, Jesus said, "I didn't come to bring a, bring peace, but a sword." Uh, in the parable of the vineyard, you remember that uh, God is the owner. He has this vineyard. He planted it, uh, but the tenants are corrupt and abusive. And at the time that he's supposed to receive fruit, while well, the tenants beat the servants, they stone another, they kill other servants, and finally the owner says, well, I will send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And then they murder the son also. So that's, you know, again, Jesus telling that parable in prediction of his death on the cross, that he'll be rejected even by his own people, rejected by the religious leaders and authorities, and crucified. But that... When Jesus died on the cross, that was the, we, we see that that was the greatest conflict. You know, we see Jesus as the champion of light over darkness. Jesus going to, final, going to war with Satan and sin and emerging victorious. Uh, listen as I read from Colossians 2, 13 through 15. You don't need to turn there. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So at the cross, we have, we have achieved, you know, Christ has achieved his you know, victory for his people. And yet... Uh, but, you know, while we wait, you know, there, it's, it's the tension between the already and not yet, right? Already, Christ is already victorious and, and, you know, we are already saved in him. There's a not yet. There, there's a, another portion of our salvation that still waits, our final glorification, Christ's final return. And while we live in between the two comings, right, the first and second comings of Christ, we, we have to deal with those twin threats I talked about last week, uh, the threat of persecution, and the call to, to be faithful and to endure, be faithful unto Christ. And we have to deal with the seduction, the seduction of this world, the temptation. We have to fight against those things. So let's, uh, let's turn back to forward to <coughs> Revelation 2. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. We're going to look at a couple of uh, passages near the beginning of Revelation where Jesus is speaking to the seven churches. So these are seven churches during the time of the Roman Empire, the first century. And Jesus is bringing you know, encouragements, rebukes, corrections uh, to the church. And these, these encouragements, these warnings apply to us today. And they deal with some of, the, some of the issues that we as a church have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses uh, 10 and 11. Do not fear. What you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Right. Um, so that's one. That's a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement to the church to endure. Uh, let's let's look at one or two more. Uh, Revelation chapter two, verses twelve through fourteen. Someone read chapter two, twelve through fourteen. Into the, I'm sorry, into the angel of the church in a Pergamos write these things say, He which has the sharp sword with two edges, I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is, and you hold fast my name, and I have not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas, Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you uh, where Satan dwelled. But I have a few things against you because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. See, see those twin struggles? Persecution and seduction there, right? Uh, and one more. Let's look at uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Great. Um, let's uh, turn forward to Revelation chapter 12. And this is, uh, we might have looked at this last week, but this, uh, this is important for us as we look at how we will achieve victory in the face of persecution and seduction. You know, obviously Christ is one that finds victory. But, you know, it's only in him by the power of the Spirit you know, with God's help, that we can we can walk a life of purity, that we can endure the face of persecution. So, someone can someone read chapter twelve, verses ten and eleven. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, "Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down." And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So in the face of persecution and seduction, our victory is in... As you see there, right, the blood of the Lamb, right, Christ, what He has done for us, His, His life, death, and resurrection, the word of our testimony, and that we love not our lives even unto death. So all that to say, you know, Revelation makes it very clear, conflict is certain, right? There's going to be conflict, there's going to be struggle in the Christian life until we see Christ return. So we shouldn't be surprised, shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us. And Jesus reminded His disciples of that over and over again. Uh, and His you know, we, we see, uh, last time I talked about the seven prophetic cycles of judgment and salvation, how they, you know, the crescendo effect, right? The, the same sequence, basic sequence of events are retold 
uh, seven different times with different images, different prophetic uh, uh, ways. Uh, but all of those seven cycles end with the final victory of Christ. Uh, he comes back and he wins. He's victorious. It results in the destruction of the wicked. results in salvation of the righteous. Several of those seven prophetic accounts do include details about a final battle against Jesus. Right? Even though, as you look around the world, the world is horribly divided. Right? Divided between nations, divided between ethnicities, divided between political views. Sadly, however, when right before Christ comes, Scripture seems to indicate that the world will unite, but they will unite against Jesus. There's a united and worldwide opposition to King Jesus. So let's look at uh, the end of the, near the end of the seven bowls, chapter 16, uh, verses 12 through 16. So it's chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. 6 angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty, God the might Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that is in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon. So there's description of worldwide, uh, you know, worldwide armies. The world is united for one purpose. And that's to gather, you know, and it's, it's under satanic influence, right? The dragon, the beast, the false prophet gather the armies of the world in final battle, in a final push, final opposition against Jesus. And we see that again in, in the, at the end of the white horse judgment in chapter 19. So turn over to 19. We're going to look at 11 through 19. White throne judgment. Uh, white horse. This is the white horse. The white throne comes after that. Um, Chapter 19, verses 11 through 19. Can someone read 19, 11 through 19? I haven't heard Dave, Dave read, read recently. You want to read? Okay, fine. <laughs> okay. Um, what is that, 11? Uh, yeah, uh, nine, chapter 19, 11 through 19. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe of dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine white linen and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of, and wrath of Almighty God, and he has a name written on his robe, and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that they may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So we see the king of kings, the lord of lords, Jesus, in this final battle secures victory. There's no question. It's it's not like it's the, the, the conflict is uncertain. We're not sure how it'll go. I mean, there's no question that he will win. You know, at the second coming, at the final battle. And notice here that, uh, you know, we've got some, we've got some graphic language at the end here about what happens to this army of hu- humanity that rebels against God. And if you remember from Genesis that God gave humanity dominion over, you know, the creatures of the earth, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. But because of sin, they forfeited. Humanity forfeited their dominion. And so we see that come to, a, to this logical conclusion. They forfeited their dominion. Now, you know, the creatures have dominion over rebellious humanity. You know, human, you know, sinful, rebel, sinful humanity is struck down, destroyed by Jesus. And then you see, like, uh, their, their food for the animals, right? No longer does humanity, because of sin, have dominion. You know, again, thank God that in Christ, that dominion is recaptured resecured for his people. But that victory also means the utter and total defeat for the beast and the false prophet. So let's look at uh, chapter 19, verse 20 and 21. So you can, just the next couple verses in that passage. Chapter 19, verse 20 and 21. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which... He deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then it also means the total and utter defeat, of course, of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet all together. So uh, turn over to chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yeah, and finally, not just Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, but all the followers of the beast are brought under judgment 
for their sin and for their ultimate rejection of the gospel, rejection of Christ. So turn back a couple of chapters to chapter 14, verses 9 and 11. Chapter 14, verse 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Yeah, I mean, these are these are sobering, uh, weighty passages that again remind us of, of the holiness of God, you know, the certainty of judgment, uh, the necessity of the gospel. Uh, the necessity of evangelism. Did you question? Or, okay. Um, but it's, it's glorious truth, though, because those of us in Christ, we have this final victory, right? The, the annihilation of all evil and all those who are carrying out evil against God and against God's people. The counterfeit trinity, right? The beast, the Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. All, the counterfeit is finally exposed, judged, and destroyed. But not only that, but all who refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus. The takeaway isn't, uh, you know, again, not to fear conflict, but to expect it, that there is a spiritual battle that we're called to endure in the face of persecution, to fight against seduction, to endure because Jesus has the final victory. Heaven is certain and all evil will be destroyed. And passages like this just remind us, okay, this, this, is, this is what God has rescued us from. Now, were it not for the grace of God, we would be amongst the multitude hating God, opposing him under the influence of Satan, and ultimately, you know, in rejecting Christ. Were it not for his supernatural you know, love and his grace, his electing grace and his you know, justifying grace, his sanctifying grace, that this would be our faith. So we've looked at uh, three C's, the counterfeit, crescendo, conflict, last C in our time remaining will be uh, consummation, consummation, the completion, the perfection of all things, consummation. I'm going to throw out some uh, theological terms. I think it's helpful for you guys to be aware of them, even though these are not terms we would typically use in the pulpit because our goal is really to, uh, to make God's word preached as accessible as possible, but in this context, as a teaching context, uh, you know, we can you know, dig into these more technical terms. Uh, who knows what the word eschatology means? Does anyone know what? Study of end times. Study of end times, the theological study of, of the last things, the end times. Uh, and how about soteriology? Who knows what the word soteriology means? Doctrine of salvation. Doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of, you know, uh, person and work of Christ, you know, what Christ did for us. So there's eschatology and soteriology. Just kind of be aware of those two terms. I need to back up again. This is where it's so helpful to know the book of Genesis because Genesis lays out a foundation for us to understand the whole world and all of human history, what God is doing, and, and how you know, and, you know, Revelation is, is the 
is the bookend, right? We see how it all comes to out comes to completion, right? Everything God starts in Genesis is brought to completion in Revelation. But I'm going to back up, the, you know, to the book of Genesis. I'm going to throw out this term that one of my seminary professors used. Uh, term is eschatology precedes soteriology. I know that's a mouthful. Eschatology precedes soteriology. And what he meant, what he meant by that, and I love the phrase because it's very concise and compact, even though it's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, in the beginning, when God created everything, creation was meant for consummation. Right? The design of creation was that God would want creation to enter a perfect and glorified state. We weren't humanity. We weren't created to remain in Eden forever. You remember God gave Adam and Eve that mandate, you know, fill the earth, uh, subdue it, multiply. Uh, the Lord God created the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. So he would tend the garden and expand the garden. So over time, you know, the, the, the whole world would ideally, or most of the world would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You know, as they uh, filled the earth and multiplied, the earth would be filled with image bearers reflecting God's glory. They would live in community as God intended. They would love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then they would be expanding the garden so that the whole world would be this glorious Eden, Eden-like place. But Eden was sub-eschatological. Okay? Again, sub-eschatological meaning it wasn't the perfected home. It wasn't the perfected, completed consummated home that God intended for humanity. Adam and Eve weren't in a perfected state, right? They were still in a state where even though they were created good and perfect and sinless, they were still created in a state where they could fall. They were created in a provisional state, meaning they were created in a state of temporary testing, right? They were given that command, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if they had passed that test, Right, this you know this this test that God had given them, you know, they, it would have required personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Meaning, they would have had to each obey that command. They would have to obey it perfectly, and they would have had to obey it for a certain amount of time. We don't know how long that time would have been, but it was not uh, an eternity. It was it would be a fixed amount of time known only to the Lord. If they had obeyed that command through their personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, then they would have entered into heavenly glory. They would have, you know, Eden would have risen up into the new heavens and new earth, or the new heavens and new earth would have come down to Eden. They would have entered into a glorified state beyond the state of provisional testing at a point where they could never fall. Right? They would enter into a glorified state. Can you hold Say that word again. <laughs> Which word? What were you talking about? Uh... Because they obey, uh, they obey command by per- perpetual... Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Okay. Uh, personal. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. They would enter into heavenly glory directly. They would enter straight from Eden, right into new heavens and new earth. Okay. And as God had made Adam and Eve and all of us in his image, we were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were the, God's goal in creation was always... I will be your God, and you will be my people. We were made for God. We were made to know Him. We were made to love Him. So consummation is what we as humanity, human beings, that's what we were made for. We were made for. Uh, we were made to dwell with God in a heavenly city. Right? We were made for a glorified body. We were made to know and enjoy God. We were made for a person and a place. The person, God, the place, heaven. So creation, in the very beginning, 
even before Genesis 3, right? Just if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and before the fall, creation was headed towards consummation. And how do we know that? Well, if Adam and Eve had passed that test, they would have been given access to the tree of life and lived forever. Genesis 3.22, you don't need to turn there. Then the Lord God said, no, this is after the fall, but we, we find out additional details. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And we find in the book of Revelation that there's also a tree of life. Right? So, so we know that they were intended to live forever in a glorified state. That was the goal of creation. Creation was intended for consummation. That's what that phrase means. Eschatology precedes soteriology. So before sin entered the world and there was a need for salvation from sin, God's plan has always been, you know, a holy God dwelling with a holy people. So this eschatology, this, you know, we were made for a glorified body, glorified state to be with God forever. That was the goal. Not even sin could stop that. Because God is not just the alpha creator, he is the omega consummator. That means whatever God starts, he finishes. And that highlights the reality between the creator and creature, right? I mean, the creator, he, he, he starts programs, he finishes them. He starts projects, he finishes them. We might start a project, there's no guarantee we'll finish it. Creation is God's project, and he's going to see it through to the end, right? He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. So that was the goal. Holy God to be with the holy people forever in a glorified state. You guys know how the rest of the story happened, though. right? Well, sin entered. Sin entered. And there was a need at that point for salvation from sin if God were going to accomplish his, his purposes. Right? So that need for salvation from sin introduces, obviously, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. Right? But eschatology precedes soteriology because God's original goal remained unchanged. Right? You know, a holy God to be with a holy people forever. The failure of Adam necessitated the need for a second Adam, Jesus Christ, who would fulfill everything that the first Adam failed to do. That's... That's, you know, from Genesis 3 onward, it's all about soteriology. It's all about what God was going to do to bring a sinful people back to himself through his salvation, right? Through, a, through, through his salvation that he would graciously extend to his people. And what Jesus Christ would ultimately accomplish would be life and righteousness for his people. So... So Adam failed, they left, they were, they had to, uh, they were exiled out of the garden, but Jesus Christ would bring us back to the garden, back to the new heavens and the new earth. So consummation, that's, that's, that's the desire of God's people, right? You know, Paul said, I would rather depart and be with Christ because that's better by far. And the end of the book of Revelation says, come Lord Jesus. So that's, that's the desire of every Christian is that we would be resurrected uh, that we would be with Christ, that we would be in heaven forever. You know, no more pain, no more crying, no more tears anymore. And our desire, obviously, when, when that happens, is that God would reveal himself, that God would be known for who he is, that every knee would bow, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God would ultimately be vindicated. And so at the consummation, all accounts will be settled. 
all wrongs will be righted. All, all wickedness will be punished. <coughs> and it'll be, it'll be seen by everyone. Uh, let's turn back to the Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Ch- Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, which is a, kind of a tidy little summary of the book of Revelation. Someone read chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he comes with a cloud, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. And as we saw last week, even at the great white throne judgment, right? I mean, the the earth and sky flee away. There's no place for them. I mean, it's going to be this worldwide, you know, cosmic shaking coming, and God alone will be exalted. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, everybody will see. They will see Jesus for who he is, even if they rejected him when he came the first time. So that means everyone will stand before his presence. Everyone. doesn't matter if you're great or small, rich or poor, powerful or weak, young or old. We're reminded that riches don't profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Right, and that that judgment, as we've seen all throughout, you know, today and last week, it's a, it's a fearful thing, right? Nothing is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom must to whom we must give an account. So everyone will see the truth, you know. At that final judgment day, at the final throne, you know, the books will be open, including the book of life, and we'll and, and the dead will be judged by according to what was written in the books. And this reality that Christ comes back, that judgment is certain, that our salvation is guaranteed, it's, it's, it's certain. Um, let's look at Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. It talks about how God will certainly bring everything about that he has promised. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, and there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. He declared his servants the prophets. So the consummation is gonna it's gonna be all extensive. It'll cover the entire created universe, right? Whether things visible or invisible, thrones of powers, rulers, authorities, right? It's all under Christ's dominion, and he will, you know, exercise that dominion in a final and decisive way. It's that, that consummation is gonna be perfectly planned. It's gonna be perfectly holy. It's gonna be gloriously beautiful. And it's going to be a physical creation. Now, just as Christ was resurrected, he had a, not just a, you know, he wasn't just a spirit floating around. He had a body and a soul, flesh and bones. Right? So, so at the consummation, we're not going to be floating around heaven, these disembodied spirits. We'll have resurrected, glorified bodies you know, that, that are going to be beautiful and young and never grow old and never grow sick or never grow tired. Right? These these everlasting, glorified, and perfected bodies that we were, we were made for. So praise God that, that, that Jesus, for all that Jesus has done, and also what Jesus will do. 
one day, right? There's a, there is that final installment, right? Our glorification, the consummation. That hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen. It's guaranteed to happen. It will happen. And let's, um, let's look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Again, just to, just to fill our minds and hearts with, you know, this is what we're destined for. This is what, you know, this is what God has secured for his people, all those who are trusting Christ, those who are in Christ. This is our home. You know, this, these are our people. This is our God. So let's look at uh, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe, hallelujah, wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Amen. Amen. That is our thank God, again, that he has redeemed us from that second death into a glorious heaven that is so glorious that, I, that words really can't capture it. I mean, I think, you know, John is struggling to paint this picture of what the heavenly glory will be like. And, and there are also things that he's not allowed to write down. And he's limited by human language. Uh, remember, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And, you know, we get a, we get a real faint picture into that in passages like this. So, you know, passages like this, you know, read them, meditate upon them, you know, let it, you know, fill your heart uh, with joy and hope and faith. Okay, this is where I'm headed. No matter how, how tough things are, you know, and no matter how difficult persecution might become one day, you know, this is our home. You know, we weren't meant for here. You know, we're just pilgrims. We're just passing through. A couple last things as we wrap up for today. I want to recommend uh, The Returning King. This is a book written by one of my seminary professors. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I don't really have any original ideas. Right? I just took this seminary class and tried to cram it down to two, two weeks, two one-hour sessions, try to summarize, hit you know, some of the most important things. Uh, I actually have a couple copies to give away. If you would like a copy of this book and you, you know, commit before the Lord that you, you will read it, uh, you're welcome to have one. Does anybody want, want one of these books? One of these books? I have four to give away, so... Did you raise your hand? Does Tim have one? 
But I know Tim has one. I could you you and you and Tim can have it. Tim, right? <laughs> if Tim has it already, I'll. That's why she's here. Now. Yeah. Um, and if, and if you don't, if anyone else wants it in our community group. Okay. <laughs> and and just so you're aware, uh, Doctor Poitier is very generous. He actually has posted all of his books for free online. So the link is on the handout. So if you didn't get a hard copy. You know, just go go to the website and you know download it, print it. You know, you 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 know he has this book available online for free. So, a um, couple couple last things. Let me just hold. Uh, your revelation is as we consider the truth of Christ's return, the truth that um, you know persecution is coming, you know judgment is certain, Christ comes back. You know, we have a future heavenly home waiting for us. Uh, it's intended to lead God's people to worship. So I want us to read just a couple passages here at the end to, to just stir our hearts t- towards worshiping our triune God for, for what He is doing, how He is just and holy and good and righteous. So let's look at Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to see glory and You created all things, and by your Lord existed, both created. Let's look at one more. 15, uh, 3 and 4. Hmm. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy, for all your nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments are made manifest. Well, let's, uh, let's just take a few minutes. Uh, maybe uh, just take time to just close in prayer, just to give thanks to God. And, uh, yeah. So that's uh, Bill. Can you can you uh, open us up with just some prayer, and then I'll close this in maybe just a minute or two. Well, Lord, we we just we just read to worship you. Lord, we we do worship you. And, Beauty of your holiness, Father God. You, you are holy. You created us.